Oh, Father, as we take our Bibles now and, and we turn our minds and our hearts in a very focused way to you and to hear your word, I pray that we would benefit immensely from this time. I pray that you'd use your word to strengthen us. I thank you, Lord, that even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you led the writers of Scripture to reveal even some of the deepest flaws of the characters therein. And I pray that we would learn from these mistakes and these flaws. I pray that you would strengthen us in our own walk and and that our faith, until our faith is sight, Lord, we would serve you faithfully and courageously and with great conviction. And so we commit ourselves to the hearing of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 26 as we uh, pursue the end goal of accomplishing our study of this entire book. We look for it to conclude on Easter Sunday. Even as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26 and get your pen and your notes ready, I want you in your minds to go with me back to the Old Testament to one of the most familiar of all the stories in the Old Testament when David killed Goliath. I mean, almost everyone knows that story and what a story it is. Here's this 17-year-old young man, about 17, 15, 16, 17. He shows up on the battlefield. They're being challenged by the Philistines. The armies of Israel turn tail and run. And this young man, in the name of Almighty God, stands for truth and for righteousness with conviction and refuses to run. You, you know the story. Takes his sling and his stone, five smooth stones that he had in his pouch. And he faces this man from Gath, the Philistine, Goliath, nine foot, six inches tall. A powerful warrior with armor. And David hits him right between the eyes with the, his slingshot. Then he goes and grabs Goliath's own sword, stabs him in the back, cuts his head off. And that began a whole new time in David's life. As you can well imagine, his name spread like wildfire around Israel. You need to remember that the king of Israel at that time was a guy named Saul. He was the very first king that Israel ever had. And remember that the Bible says he was a head and shoulders taller than everyone in the land. He was a big, strong guy, but he had run from Goliath. He had allowed his armies, the armies of the living God, to stalemate with the armies of Philistia, and he had allowed Goliath to, to stand over them until young shepherd boy David comes along and knocks him out with his slingshot and whacks his head off. Well, you need to remember that they started writing songs about this. Everybody talked about David. Everybody talked about this victory over Goliath. And, and one of the songs that they wrote, uh, the words went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And David became a huge folk hero in the land. And King Saul was jealous. Not only that... Do you remember that God's prophet Samuel comes along and he ordains and anoints David, the shepherd boy, to be the next king in Israel? Saul finds out about this. He is enraged with envy. And for about the next 10 years after David kills Goliath, though he was anointed to be the king, 
He was the heir to the throne. He was God's man to lead Israel. Saul refuses to step down. Saul chases David around the country for about the next 10 years. David did not have an easy life. He lived in the wilderness. He lived in caves. His best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. All this takes place from 1 Samuel 16. You don't have to turn there. 1 Samuel 16 in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is recorded. And in 1 Samuel 21, we encounter a story that I wanted to bring your attention uh, as we prepare ourselves for Matthew 26. It is just a, a bizarre episode in the life of David. Here he is. He has killed Goliath. He's the anointed king of Israel to come. Saul is chasing him around. God is preserving his life. And David, now listen to the word, David becomes afraid. He becomes overwhelmed with fear for his life from King Saul. And he begins to doubt God's plan. So he runs for his life. And where does he run? But of all places, Philistia, Gath, where Goliath is from. And he runs because he thinks that he won't be known there. By now he's matured. He's probably wearing a, a, a wild and woolly, bushy beard and long hair, living in the wilderness. And he thinks he can go to the king of Philistia and he can get some refuge from King Saul. Let me just read the account. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It begins with verse 10. And it is a most interesting scene. Imagine in your mind's eye what's happening. And so David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish, Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. Listen to this. And he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he's being recognized. So in a nanosecond in David's mind, he realizes I have to do something so that they will think I'm not that David. So he changed, verse 13, his behavior before them. And he pretended to be insane in their hands and he made marks on the doors of the gate and he let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You see what's happening is David realizes that he could be killed. He realizes that the servants are whispering to the king that we think this is David who killed Goliath, who's from right here. And David knows he has to do something, and so he implodes with terrorizing fear, with paralyzing fear. David immediately makes a decision. It is a terrible decision. It is a faithless decision. It is a disgraceful decision. And he humiliates himself in front of the king by spitting and foaming at the mouth and letting his beard fill up with spit. And then he begins to flail around and wail and carry on. And he runs against the doors of the gates and he scratches and he kicks them until he leaves marks. And the king says, I have enough madmen around me. Get, get him out of here. 
Now, if you were going to make a list of all of the strong men of God in the Old Testament, even with his flaws, particularly with women, you would have to say, at least on your first hand, as you counted the strong men with faith in God in your Old Testament, David's got to make your list. And here he is, humiliating himself with fear. I want that mindset to carry us now over to Matthew 26, because if we were going to name the top five strong men of faith and men of action in the New Testament, I believe on our first hand, we would have to count in our top five, Peter the Apostle. If ever there was a strong man in the New Testament, as David was a physically strong man in the Old Testament, Peter is a physically strong guy. I think he's big. We don't know that for sure. He was a fisherman. He was rough. He was outspoken. He was probably a little bit older than some of the disciples. He, he was a powerful man physically, emotionally. He vented easily. He was one of the sons of thunder. He, had a, he lost his temper, evidently, easily. But he was a faithful disciple, wasn't he? He even wrote part of our Bible, our New Testament. First and Second Peter are there. A lot of people think that the Gospel of Mark was young Mark recording through the eyes of Peter his account of his time with Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 26. Your notes are positioned. And I want to break down our passages here today into three scenes as if it were... A play. If this, we were in an auditorium and the curtains are going to open and we're going to have three distinct scenes. Before we do that, let's remind ourselves that we have just com- we have left, as of our last message, we left our Lord and His disciples in the upper room. They have just completed the Passover. This is verses 26 to 29 in Matthew chapter 26. Our Lord has effectively, once and for all, brought the Passover feast and meal to an end, and He has replaced it with His table. He has replaced it with a memorial. A memorial to His own blood that was shed for our sin, and a memorial to His own body that was broken to us. So in the church today, we do not, other than in a historical way, uh, celebrate the Passover, but we regularly remind ourselves of the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and His accomplishment as the ultimate sacrificial Lamb, substituting in our place that He would be the Savior of the world. We regularly hold the cup in our hand, don't we? And the cup represents His shed blood. And we hold the bread in our hand and we partake together as a church, reminding ourselves, and our Lord has just instituted this in the upper room, and now they are leaving. I can picture them heading down the stairs from this upper room. Perhaps some of them are already on the ground. They're heading now to the Garden of Gethsemane, and next week we will focus on our Lord's prayer time and our disciples' sleepiness in the garden But on the way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a conversation that takes place. It is a most interesting and remarkable conversation. And it's it's worth listening in on. It's scene one. We're calling scene one strong words. Let's look at the exchange of words that goes on as the disciples leave with their Lord, the upper room. It says in verse 30 of Matthew 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
That's where the garden was, where they're going, our Lord will pray. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Although they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Yeah, Lord, not me, Lord. We will never do this. Scene one is characterized by words. As it opens up, we see letter A, sad words. Here they have just been celebrating the Passover together. They've had this most precious time together with their Lord. He's held up the cup. He's broken the bread. He's reminded them that there is going to be a new covenant now to enter into. They sing a hymn together. It's just a nice time together. They're walking out now to go to the garden. And our Lord says, you will all fall away because of me tonight. Are you kidding me? Lord, we've been together three years. Lord, you're our Lord and our Master. You see, we're only about 12 hours away from the cross now, really. Uh, 15 hours away from the cross. Probably about going into midnight, it's after dark, as they head here. And, and our Lord communicates to them these sad words that they will leave Him tonight. Not only are they sad words, but you need to understand that they're prophetic words. Look what our Lord says. He says in verse 31, You all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's a loose quote, a paraphrase sort of, of Zechariah 13.7. That's what Jesus is quoting. You see, lots of times in the Old Testament... Unless it's identified by apostolic preaching like Acts chapter 2 or our Lord right here. If you would have read Zechariah 13.7, you would not have realized that you were talking about it was a prophetic statement about our Lord Jesus Christ. But our Old Testament is filled with prophetic statements about what would be fulfilled in Messiah as he comes to earth and as he goes to the cross and as he rises again and as he becomes the Savior of the world. Prophetic words are followed by strange words, letter C. Notice what Jesus says. You all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So you're the flock, you're going to run. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What in the world does that mean? I mean, imagine hearing this if you're one of the disciples. Lord, we're not going to run from you. Lord, we're not going to betray you. What are you talking about? But don't worry, after... Uh, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And it's another statement of prophetic vision by our Lord as he states exactly what's going to happen after he rises from the dead. And indeed, these must have been strange words. We know from the gospel accounts that our, our disciples did not understand 
even though our Lord had three times specifically told them in recent days, I am going to Jerusalem, I am going to be crucified, I am going to die, I will rise again. They missed it all. We know that because in the gospel accounts, it says that it was after the resurrection and they were reunited with their Lord that they recognized, oh, they had their aha moment and they realized, oh, that's what he's talking about. They just couldn't pull it together. At this time, they are still thinking that he's going to implement a physical kingdom on earth. So these strange words are responded to by Peter with letter D, heartfelt words. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And indeed he did. Remember in John chapter 20, when Peter went a fishing, he's frustrated. He doesn't have things figured out. He's still filled with guilt about this occasion. And when they're fishing, they look to the shore in Galilee, at the Sea of Galilee. And who do they see? They see their Lord at a fire frying fish for breakfast. He was there ahead of them. Exactly the way he said. That's John's gospel in chapter 20. You could make note of that, and we're not going to get to it this morning, but that's where Jesus restores Peter and forgives him for what he's going to do this night. Peter says in verse 33, Though they all fall away because of you. And you know what he's doing? He's thinking about these 11 other disciples that they might fall away. Not me. No, that's Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Lord. Never. It's just not going to happen. How many of you would raise your hand right now and say, uh, Peter absolutely meant what he said? I think so. I think he absolutely meant what he said. Lord, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. I would never deny you. I will never fall away from you. Heartfelt words are responded to by serious words as our Lord, and picture them walking now away from the upper room, and Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, Peter, and he's talking specifically to Peter now, before the rooster crows, not once and not twice, but three times, Peter, you will deny me. Serious words for Peter to have fall on his ears. But oh, look look what Peter says, verse 35. He responds now with strong words. It's what we name this scene, strong words. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said, Me too, me too, me too. We draw the curtains on scene one, and we recognize then that Our Lord goes to the garden and He prays. We'll have lessons on prayer with our Lord in the garden next week. Tying together a thread of these scenes is Peter's responses and our Lord's betrayal. So we go to scene two now and we open the curtains on scene two. We call this scene the kiss of death. The kiss of death. You know this scene quite well. It begins with verse 47 now in chapter 26. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, a greeting, so rabbi. Hiss. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. 
And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Wow. Wow. Scene two, the kiss of death, begins with a subversive disciple. We know that it's Judas. And Judas has arranged this uh, underhanded agreement for 30 pieces of silver, which was also prophesied in the Old Testament. And he has indicated that he will go to our Lord. He will kiss him on the cheek, which was a common greeting even for men in this culture. And he, but he's a subversive disciple. He's kissing him as though he is an inner circle friend, but he brings a sword. You see, in this culture, you would not let anybody near you close enough to kiss in that kind of greeting if you thought he was an enemy. Now, do you remember the story in the Old Testament in the book of Judges? Ehud, the left-handed judge? And that's how he got to the king. And he goes up to him and, and he wants to whisper in his ear and kiss him. And he has a dagger in his and he's left-handed, and I guess the, you would kind of watch a guy's right hand when he's coming in to kiss you to make sure he's not going to shiv you. And that's exactly what he did with his left hand as he kissed him. And that's what Judas does. He, he comes in and he betrays him with this kiss. This is an act of friendship. This is only guys who are close enough to trust each other who will allow this. And he puts the shiv to our Lord as he kisses him on the cheek. So it were. The subversive disciple is contrasted by a submissive Savior, though. Our Lord doesn't fight. He doesn't holler. He doesn't yell and carry on. He doesn't try to pick up a rock and start defending himself. He just says, this is powerful. And he lives out his own teaching as he turns the other cheek. And he says, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. And so then they came and up and they laid hands on Jesus. They seized him and I take it that he reached his hands out and they cuffed him right there. This is probably a good time for us to flip to John 18. I want to read, I want to read John 18 together because it really lends some important insight uh, from another angle, another view. John chapter 18 is John's account of this very scene. It begins in verse 3. And it runs through verse 11. And notice closely as we read, because it's really interesting, the detail that John gives. John chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, these soldiers that came were probably part of the temple guard. They were well-trained. They were like Marines who guard the president. And Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
So it's dark out and this procession comes and they're well armed. They got body armor. They've got spears, swords, clubs, battle axes. They're holding these lanterns. The shadows are flickering. And then Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He didn't try to hide. And he said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. It's, it's notable to me that John, the beloved, who loved Jesus, refuses to tell the story of the kiss. Now, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he kind of omits that part. But notice what he does say. He says, And when Jesus said to them, I am he, verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, check this out. He's standing there in the shadows. They're holding their torches. This, this group of soldiers comes up and they say, and Jesus steps forward into the light cast by their torches. And he said, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. Clatter, bang, they all fall down. Oh, who do they think they're messing with? You would think they would get a clue. Just by the word of his mouth, they, they fall backwards and stumble over each other. They must have thought that they tripped on each other. I can see them scrambling as they rise. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. I, I told you. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's pointing to his disciples. Notice this. Once again, fulfillment of scripture, verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one None of the disciples would die on this night. And then Simon Peter, here he is, whom Matthew leaves unnamed, who puts his hand to the sword. John names Peter, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that your father has given me? We're back in Matthew 26, and we're clicking through scene two, the kiss of death. We, we have a subversive disciple. We have a submissive savior, savior. And I wanted to identify our sword-swinging sailor. Peter never was trained in fighting. But this is a testimony to his conviction. This is a testimony Put in a little beef behind his words. Lord, as long as I'm around, they're not going to touch you. So he grabs his sword out of his sheath or his robe or his belt and he starts to swing at probably a shorter sword. Malchus is named in John's account the servant to the high priest. He's evidently a younger man. He can duck out of the way when a fisherman's swinging a sword and the, the sword evidently slaps off the side of his head and traces up his skull and either shears his ear off or nearly cuts it off. And our Lord says, Peter, put it away. Last Sunday morning when I walked into church, a guy here gave me a flip-out knife. It's a pretty nice knife. I, I didn't have one like that. He's kind of... It's not a switchblade, but it's a cool knife. You know, the clip knife on your pocket. So I've been wearing my knife all week. <coughs> Makes me feel tough. Prepared. <laughs> Practice with it a little bit. Flip. I think, bring it on. I'm ready. I said, what if he has a gun? I'll throw it. <laughs> That's how Peter is. I got my sword on my belt here. Let him come. I got my, I got my Lord's back. I can take these guys. Peter, 
put the sword away. You can almost hear the Lord laughing. Peter, put the sword away. You want to live by the sword? You're going to die by the sword. Peter, that's not what I'm doing here. And in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, we have this account. Luke, I assume, because he's Luke the physician, is the only one of the writers of the gospel account here of this story that tells us that Jesus reaches out and he reattaches Malchus's ear to his head. I don't know if he had to pick it out of the dirt and blow it off or if it was just flapping there by some skin, but he reaches out. And I would say that's the second time these guys ought to get a clue who they're dealing with. He speaks and they fall down. He reaches out and he reattaches the guy's ear to his head. Who are you dealing with here? I'll tell you who you're dealing with. You're dealing with a sovereign Lord, letter D. And notice what Matthew says in verses 52 to 55. He says, Peter put the sword away. And then he says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's thousands, tens of thousands of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? There it is again. Peter, the scriptures say it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. You can't change it. And I don't need your sword. I am the sovereign Lord of the universe My father would send me legions of powerful warrior angels right now if I wanted, but that's not his plan. And furthermore, I don't even need those. I just stuck this guy's ear. I just spoke a word and knocked them all down. Peter, come on. And we have a beautiful picture, and it's what Matthew is doing here, holding up the beauty of our sovereign Lord, not as he has taken captive, but as he surrenders himself to the will of the Father to accomplish God's plan of salvation because it's all about letter E, scriptural fulfillment. Scriptural fulfillment. Notice what it says in 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. Verse 56. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You could write in the margin there of your notes under letter E, Psalm 41.9, for example. Psalm 41.9. Psalm 55, 12 through 14, all prophetic statements by the psalmist of the Messiah giving his life over, being taken captive, right there, fulfilling scripture. How about Isaiah 53? And like a lamb without a sound, he's going to go to the slaughter. Why is he doing this? Why won't he let Peter fight for him? Because something greater is going on here. It is now time on God's sovereign timetable for the Son of God, the only one who's qualified to go and to hang on a cross and to become the intersection, the interceptor between God and man. You see, God is holy and He cannot look at sin. And we are broken sinners and we need a Savior. We need help. And God has an an undeniable, unbreakable spiritual law. And that law is that the wages of sin is death. Wherever there's sin, it will bring death. And the only way to remove sin is for something to die, pay the price. That's why the Old Testament is filled with pictures of dead animals. And it's why our Lord is pictured as a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. You see, Peter, 
Put your sword away because the time has come that all of the Old Testament saints of old have looked forward to and all of my children in my church will look back to. It is when I am going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. I am going to take the sins of the world upon myself and my blood will flow. My body will be broken and I will create and perform the ultimate sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of a holy God that he will accept and all people everywhere will be able to look to the cross and live. Your sin will be forgiven there. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead to show you that I'm for real. And Peter's saying, no, Lord, don't do this. Are you kidding me, Peter? Let him go, man. I need a savior. I am a sinner and I, I can't solve my own sin problem before a holy God. So Peter, don't stop him. Don't intercept God's will. It's not God's will for you to stop him. It's God's will for him to go. And he did go and he does go. And we're going to see it played out in Scripture as he goes to the cross. And there the sins of the world will be placed upon him. And from now on, from then on, we will be able to run to the cross and receive forgiveness of sin. That's why we love to sing what we just sang. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, baby. It's all on Him. That's why we love that Him. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's my only hope, and Peter tried to stop it. Come on, Peter. So scripture is fulfilled and we conclude scene two with a sorry bunch of friends and exactly what Jesus said five hours before happens. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Do you remember just a few hours ago? Jesus said, you will all fall away on account of me tonight. And they said, never, never, never. And here it is already just a few hours later. It's remarkable, isn't it? And so we go to scene three, and let's just let our eyes take in this passage and let our minds vision envision it. We call this scene three, bitter tears. Begins with verse 69. Well, they did take Jesus from the garden there, and the next section, 57 to 68, is the kangaroo court that goes on. They beat him with rods. They beat him with cat and nine tails. By his stripes we will be healed. They jam a crown of thorns on his head. He's got blood running down his face, the back of his neck, down his back. They've stripped him. They've mocked him. They've blindfolded him. They're playing games with him. We know from other accounts of the gospel that Peter followed the group as they captured and arrested Jesus, that Peter stayed back as the disciples. Evidently what happened is when it was time, when Jesus then surrendered, they tied him up, they grabbed him. After he healed Caiaphas' uh, servant's ear, Malchus's ear, the disciples evidently dashed for the shadows in the brush. And they take Jesus down the path, but Peter circles around, and we know from other accounts that he followed where he could see and watch. In verse 69, scene three, bitter tears. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. 
And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up, and they said to Peter, You know, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. I always know someone from Boston. I, I know somebody who's from Atlanta, Georgia. I can always tell where you're from. You're a Galilean. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself. On my mama's grave. I'm telling you, I don't know the man. I'm telling you, stick a thousand needles in my eye. I'm telling you the truth. I, I swear by the gods. Some Bible stu students believe that when it says that he swears these oaths, that he even made curses against Jesus. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The night was divided into four watches, six to nine, nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to six. Sometime after the third watch, roosters will begin to crow. We're somewhere around three in the morning beyond. From midnight to three, Peter has been slinking in the shadows and he's been watching them abuse his master. And it's cold. I put all of the accounts there for you. You will find it most interesting to take time this week to read these accounts. It's fascinating reading. And they all have more information. It's good stuff. And they took charcoal and they built a fire because it was cold and Peter couldn't resist. And so he comes out of the shadows. He gathers around the fire and there around the fire, one of the servants of the priest is standing and she looks up. And like children often notice people and realize who they are. She says, you, you're one of them. You're one of them. Fear runs through Peter. It must have been like a bolt of lightning when that little girl began to recognize him because he says, um, no, I'm not. And in fact, I don't even know what you're talking about. At this point, I want to say what I said about Judas, you dirty dog. He's almost even with Judas right now, isn't he? He moves over and another little girl says, I know you, you are with them, I saw you. And he begins to swear, cursing and oaths. I'm, I'm telling you, I'll put my hand on a stack of Bibles. I don't know that guy. And somebody says, hey, you know what? You got that. Yeah, yeah, you're a Galilee. You were with him. I do recognize you. And he just emphatically declares, I never heard of this guy. I don't know this guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Cock-a-doodle-doo. We know from either Mark's or John's account, I can't remember right now, that as, Jesus, as Peter had followed Jesus along, and as he is in this courtyard, there is evidently some kind of a hallway there, and he can look through the courtyard, and he can either look into the space where Jesus is having this, being tried in this kangaroo court, but one of the gospel accounts tells us that at the very moment that the rooster crows, Peter looks up and he looks right into the eyes of our Lord Jesus. Oh. oh, man. The sound of the rooster trips 
in Peter's mind the very words that our Lord had cautioned him about. And it ends, and he went out, and he wept bitterly. You talk about foolish, ashamed, disgraceful. This is David urinating down his own leg, foaming in his own beard, scratching the doors, and he's the king of all of Israel. This is the mighty Peter, the apostle, swearing upon an oath that he doesn't even know the man. He's never heard of the man. He doesn't want anything to do with the man. And then he makes eye contact. Are you thinking something right now through this whole message? You're supposed to be thinking something. Now you're supposed You're supposed to be thinking, if it could happen to David, and it could happen to Peter, will you say it with me? It could happen to me. Is this powerful? And he weeps. How does this happen? Uh, let's just conclude with a few thoughts. We're actually not going to be able to have time to go to the restoration of Peter. That's in John's Gospel in chapter 20. And what a beautiful occasion it is where our Lord restores fellowship with Peter. How did it ever come to this? Well, some of us could give testimony. We know exactly how this works, don't we? We know exactly how Peter felt. Well, first of all, he didn't listen very well. Our Lord told him everything that was going to happen. Our Lord told him everything he was going to do. Our Lord told him exactly what was going to go down. Not only did he not listen very well, but he contradicted his Lord. He interrupted him, just like he did in Matthew 16. Lord, never on my watch. And Jesus turns to him in Matthew 16. And what does he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because what you're telling me, Peter, is exactly contrary to the will of God for my life. And when anybody, somebody, anywhere whispers in your ear that which is contrary to the will of God, they are never so close to Satan as in that moment. They're Satan's ally. When they whisper in your ear, disregard what Jesus just said. And Peter didn't listen. And that's what we do when we deny our Lord, don't we? We deny the very Word of God. He tells us how to stand strong. He tells us in His Word, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common unto man. But God is faithful, and He will, along with that temptation, provide the way to escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You can escape. Oh, no, I can't. I'm scared right now. I'm afraid. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I mean, where was your moment? Where can you go to in your mind where you're Peter? Is it in a college classroom at a secular university and you know the teacher is going to make a grease spot of you in that class in front of everybody because you're one of those Bible-believing Christians, Christ followers? You do know that Christian means little Christ or Christ follower. Who cares what she thinks or he thinks? Maybe it's at the coffee pot and a conversation starts up and you think to yourself, I need to get out of here fast before they identify me as the very person they're talking about. And maybe you're on the job with a bunch of guys and so maybe you're in basic training and you let your language go where they go because you want to know that you're one of them. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 1, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
The word foolishness there I've repeated many times. In the Greek is the word that we get our English word moron from. You're a moron. If you follow Jesus, you're a moron. Get used to it. But believe the word and follow the word and know that the word is true. And Peter, he couldn't deal with a little girl looking up at him and saying, you're one of them. <laughs> Why? Because like David, he became afraid for his very life. Fear is an incredible motivator. We know every person in this room needs to not say what they would do in that situation because you don't know. You might pretend to be mad. You might start foaming at the mouth to create an act to get yourself out of there any way you can. But why would we be ever embarrassed of a guy who can stick ears on guys' heads? I think that's cool. Who can speak a word? It is I, and the whole troops fall over. You either believe his word or you don't believe his word. And if you don't believe his word, you'll declare on an oath, I have no idea what you're talking about. Number two, he was tired and he was stressed. Just a practical thought as we wrap up. And he trusted in his own strength. He trusted in his own strength. Peter was fatigued, Peter was tired. He was trusting in his own strength. And if ever there's a time when we're depleted in all of our resources, it's a time not to depend on ourselves. It's a time to be still and to let God be God. Number three, he thought of himself as above average. He thought of himself as above average. I was thinking, I can relate to this. Maybe everybody else, but not me, Lord. He was proud, not humble. Let him that thinks he stand do what? Watch out, lest he fall. Proverbs warns us, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I did this yesterday afternoon. I was cutting wood out back in the church property. It was right before dark. I'd been working on my sermon. I was almost ready. I had to cut a little wood. My saw was working good. I knocked down one of those dead ash trees, not a big one, and uh, was whacking it up real fast. And you know what I was thinking? I'm embarrassed. I was thinking, I'm really good with a chainsaw. And I thought to myself, I'll bet I cut this tree down and whacked it up faster than any, anybody could. Faster than Lonnie Anderson or Drew Goldbranson, faster than anybody. And right then, God is my witness. I hit a stone. <laughs> there was a stone right underneath that piece. And that was the end of my cutting. And I grinned to myself and I thought, you're such an idiot. These other 11, these other 11, maybe they'll fall, but not me. That's Peter. Thought of himself as above average. He was humble. He was proud, not humble. Finally, he had limits to his comfort zone, didn't he? You know, because you can think of scenarios that you can deal with, but somewhere along the line, your comfort zone runs out and you realize, I am very uncomfortable in this scenario right now and I've got to get out of here or I've got to go crazy and convince them that I am not 
who they think I am. He was afraid. He was afraid. And in his fear, he disgraced the name of his Lord Jesus. So, I think it's a powerful motivator. If Peter knew he was going to look right into the eyes of the Lord Jesus that moment, do you think he would have said what he said? Remember, we're going to look right in the eyes of our Lord Jesus one day. And he's going to know everything about us. Let's stand together. So, Father, we want to humble our hearts before you. Uh, Lord, um, thank you that you are patient with us. You are faithful even when we are faithless. And thank you for Peter's testimony. What a joy it's going to be to fellowship around your throne and your feet with Peter, James and John and Andrew, to sing your praises. None of us worthy of your presence, all of us deniers of our Lord at one time or another, but saved by grace alone. And your precious work at the cross that you carried out exactly as the scriptures said you would. Thank you for exposing the flaws of these strong men, David and Peter, and how we can learn from them. May we be afraid of ourselves, Lord, and may we walk in humility before you. And would you help us, from the youngest to the oldest, to never be ashamed of your gospel or your name. It's in that name that we pray. May we ask your blessing for another week, should you tarry.